0: It's it's kind of exciting to give life to a lot of legends and monsters that are talked about in in everyday life, in the culture that you're in. So I think that's like an exciting, like science fiction and fantasy is an exciting place to give life to these, these monsters. So many superstitions that are just like mentioned. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people just like take it from granted, like, once you're removed from that environment, you realize like how special they are, and in science fiction and fantasy, it's an exciting place to like give them a new life, uh, explore them again, and also in that way to immortalize them, because we you are teaching new people about it that might not know of these stories, and and they might be intrigued to look up something about it, you know, to to read more on it, or or they might be enthralled by it and it's another way to keep the culture alive in an engaging way.
1: What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 66 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me as always is my co-host, the Chew to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, MJ Kuhn. How's it going, MJ?
2: Hello. I am great. How are you?
1: (laughs) I'm doing real great. And if you want to support MJ and her work, you can pick up Among Thieves, this sexy little book right here, and its sequel, (laughs) Thick as Thieves. Because it's a duology and they're both done and you can binge it and it's awesome and you're going to love it. And thieves and heists and found family and hatchets <laughs> and people swearing and people dying. It's fucking awesome. Go pick it up <laughs> as well. you A quick note for everyone out there listening or watching the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live. So check the links in the description to support what we do here. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the FanFi Addict YouTube channel where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now joining us once again is none other than Gabriela Romero La Cruz, author of *The Sun and the Void*. Welcome back, Gabby. How's it going?
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be back.
1: Welcome, welcome. And uh, heads up, this is part two of our two-part chat with Gabby. So I recommend checking out part one to get to know her better. Today, though, we're taking a trip to the real world. Oh no. As we delve into a mini masterclass on real cultures as inspiration. So, just to start off this masterclass, we would like to know. For you personally, what does culture mean to you?
0: Um, it's kind of like a blueprint of the people that came before you. Just kind of like a combination of the arts that make up your community and enrich your life. And just like, uh, add, it, it's part of your identity. It adds to what you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's so that, a beautiful
2: uh, description of
0: culture. Of yeah, music, food, beliefs, stories, customs, celebrations,
1: yeah, yeah. That's one of the coolest things I think about traveling is you get to see other people's cultures and and understand, or living in other places too.
0: See understand. how other people live is yeah. very yeah. fascinating,
1: and the things that inspire them and influence them. Yeah, yeah. why do why do you think that culture? Why do you think culture is so? integral to humans and our personal collective identities, just kind of building on what we what you just said.
0: Um well it it comes about from the, the result of self-expression because culture kind of like st- becomes it's like the collective of the arts. So communities have arts and beliefs and that gets carried on through generations and uh, so, so that it just becomes like its own thing. It becomes a culture, you know?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like this. Um, I don't know. Li- living somewhere else, it kind of made me appreciate what it was like to grow up in Canada. Because Canada's one of those weird places where. Um, Like the cultural identity of Canadians around the world is like, oh, you guys are nice. It's like Canadians are so kind, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you haven't fucking met Canadians before. (laughs) We are (laughs) passive aggressive as shit. And all the niceness is on the surface. And and a lot of it is, is just Boiling oh. underneath. Interesting um, you say
0: that because like- I still think Canadians are nice. Yes, <laughs> no, they are. No. <laughs> I just went yeah, to Canada this nice. summer. I still think Canadians are yeah.
2: pretty
1: nice. Canadians <laughs> are nice, but we're also two-faced. No, this is also a generalization. All the Canadians out there are gonna be like, yeah, maybe, but they'll be like,
2: Adrian, you're giving away our secrets.
1: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I think it's really, really cool to see to meet individual people and to kind of see the things that shaped them. And then on top of that, to see the place that shaped them and to kind of understand like the different facets of how how that puzzle piece worked together. And like I think history is one of the craziest aspects of culture because it's like we live now but then so much of what we experience is based on things that have come from centuries and centuries and centuries before
0: yeah and so many things of what we believe in and that shape our life it has been created by someone that came before us um the victors of this and the writers of of the stories and like the Even the things that the ways the ways you're educated and the things that you believe are written by the victors most of the time. And a lot of the literature, a lot of the uh, music has can have a certain point of view and is the point of I think we're going into like another topic here, but it's like, it's the point of view of like the dominant or whoever wrote the story. Right. Right. And if you're surrounded in a place where like this is a certain voice that is writing the story, the majority voice, then it's very easy to like have a certain belief that might not have always been true. It's just kind of like the, uh, the belief that's on top of the one that was before
2: yeah. yeah no. Like compa- no, it totally makes sense. Compounding beliefs
1: and compounding history. Mm-hmm. And
2: yeah, in history, like the the victors, right? The the dominant groups will rewrite history or omit parts of history that completely change yeah. the story. And that that totally, I feel like uh, influences the greater culture. And I I always say when I'm you know writing a, a new project, I create the world first because I do think that the world and its history and its cultures influences everything else, right?
0: And how the, the character characters. interacts Correct. in that
2: world. Yes. It's a, a you column? know, everyone is a yeah. you know a product of their society yeah. in some way.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to get both your takes on this because it's like there is this kind of thing where the victors are writing history and and, and they have the power to omit so much stuff. But then like I really love those moments in history where like the counterculture or like the counter narrative ends up becoming so much more powerful and prominent than than the people who tried to omit them. Like I'm just thinking about like music as a particular example, like in the United States where, um, you know, people kind of attribute rock and roll to white people. It's like, they think of Elvis and they think of like these bands that became really big, but it's like, no, rock and roll started with the like African-American community and things like jazz and the way that jazz and blues and all these different kinds of things like morphed and eventually became such a huge thing. But then obviously the opposing force came back to try and sort of steal the narrative from them with, you know, musicians like Elvis and whatnot. But then now I feel like we're at a time where that recognition is coming back and there's more like appreciation for um, the voices that have been suppressed over the course of, of history.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you live in America, then there's a very, very loud opposing voices that are terrified that we are trying to actually (laughs) shed light on the stories that have been suppressed and are fighting back tooth and nail and it is everything is you know well look at look at the news in Florida is (laughs) is all about that. (laughs) Yeah like uh. (laughs) so yeah it's all a mess.
1: (laughs) You're beautiful country. sure. <laughs> we'll go with that.
2: It's oh, just a beautiful,
1: beautiful shit show. It's great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Gabby, I'm curious. Do you, uh, we talked a little bit in part one of our two-parter, um, about your history with, um, you know, getting interested in reading and calming to it from, uh, anime and fan fiction and video games and stuff like that. Um, so I want to take All of fiction, so it doesn't have to be book, can be any form. Uh, Do you remember the first time you remember noticing culture or even like a lack of culture or a different culture or something from your own in fiction?
0: In fiction? Uh, Well, I would say like growing up in Venezuela, like the culture is shown in like the telenovelas and the the dramas that are on the TV show, you know, Uh, it's contemporary culture exists and what's being shown on the TV. Um, So, so yeah, I didn't really notice. I I mean, I grew up in Venezuela, so it's like I took a lot of things for granted about uh, the things that I knew. But even having grown up in Venezuela, I had um, the things that I knew we're not also the whole picture. Um, it's just like a lot, a lot to unpack here. Uh, let's just say like the <laughs> educational materials have a certain lens to how the story is told. And, and I accepted that. But then later on, as I'm re- as I'm reading more things about the culture that I'm realizing that uh, everything had a very like, Spanish centric point of view and other smaller ethnic cultures were being uh, disregarded, right? Um, so I have this idea that we have a very homogeneous culture because when I came to the US, I noticed how re- there's so many different cultures and they're very starkly different. But also, the um, it's, it's not true to say that we're a homogeneous culture in Venezuela. There's also like very di- different groups that have their own unique um, experiences and cultures. And it's just, it just so happens that like the majority is, has been shaped by more of like an European lens um, is what I would say. So, Venezuelan culture, I experienced it into the novelas, but like in fantasy, um, I don't think I I did when I was there. And uh coming here whenever any anytime Venezuela was brought up, it was like I don't know, like I just mentioned as like the guerrilla group in some action movie, like, oh the yeah. Venezuelans have overtaken the base. Like that's literally the any only any
1: like Tom movie. Clancy
0: whatever <laughs> fucking <laughs> <laughs> Um Yeah. So, I don't know. It's too much, guys. It's too deep. It's, it's oh. too deep.
1: It's too deep.
0: No, yeah. Well, too there's, there's too many layers. There's too many layers back here. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there's so much. You know what I mean? There's so so many places we could go with it. Um, but like you know, let's bring it back to to the sun and the void and your projects and. Um, you know, why, what is it about fantasy or even sci-fi? Because I know you mentioned in part one that you had written uh, a, a YA sci-fi before you wrote Sun in the Void. Um, what is it about those genres that um, makes them kind of a fitting uh, baseline, I guess, to to create cultures that are inspired by real world
0: cultures, do you think? Well, it's it's kind of exciting to give life to a lot of legends and monsters that are talked about in in everyday life, in the culture that you're in. So I think that's like an exciting, like science fiction and fantasy is an exciting place to give life to these, these monsters. And uh, like, for example, I would love one day to read or write a story that highlights the, the horror stories of El Silvón. It's like the most well known like horror creature in Venezuela. Everyone knows about El Silvon is like a infamous legend. Or like uh the the Mamoys, which are like this little like Duendes.
1: How do I say that? Like little They're they're verb. like uh, no they're like gnomes.
0: Like gnomes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no my,
1: my my mother-in-law like mi suegra, you know, like she's always talking about duendes. Like don't leave the baby's clothes outside cuz the duendes will come and steal Yes. Like... Yes. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. They're like go fucking take those little baby socks and put them on my feet. <laughs>
0: oh my god. There's so yeah, so like so many superstitions that are just like mentioned. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people just like take it from granted, like the people in your community, Adriana, like they just the superstitions, like are just they just exist mm-hmm. and yeah. and maybe might, might be taken for granted. But like once you're removed from that environment, you realize like how special they are. And in science fiction and fantasy, it's an exciting place to like give them a new life, uh, explore them again, and also in that way to immortalize them because we you are teaching new people about it. That might not know of these stories and and they might be intrigued to look up something about it you know to to read more on it or or they might be enthralled by it and it's another way to keep the culture alive in an engaging way yeah it's very exciting i think there's a lot of potential
1: Mm -hmm. MJ, i want to get your take on that too because it's like you mentioned earlier that you like to approach it from like creating the world first as your sort of baseline, but yeah, why do, you, why do you think that's the case in terms of fantasy and sci-fi being such fertile ground?
2: Yeah, I think it is because uh, I mean, in a lot of if you're looking at fantasy particularly, which is what I've written so far, um, you know, oftentimes, not always, it's kind of set in a f- historical second world, right, where it's not you know, modern day. Uh, second world again. There there are examples where it is, um, and I think that in most cultures, when you go back really far in history, there is often this blending of myth and history that kind of walk hand in hand, and you see these kind of the the blurring of those lines. Um, and I do think that fantasy is a fun environment where you can you can blur those lines. And like, why don't we have just, a, you know, monsters uh, existing uh, side by side with people? Why can't we have gods that come down and actually walk among people? Um, I really think that, uh, I think that it just lends itself well to exploring that kind of phenomenon of early world history across cultures where you have that blending.
1: Yeah, because it's like the, the perfect... The perfect situation where you can use real world inspiration, but in a, in such a way where it's like um, contained within something that is not real, but is allegorically so potent in terms of what we experience day to day. Like I'm thinking, okay, like I've I have two examples. So the first one is Altered Carbon by uh, Richard K. Morgan. Yeah, and that one. The author said some really shitty stuff about trans people, and it's like, that's unacceptable. But I'm just going to use this as an example, his book as an example, in the sense that Altered Carbon uses a science fictional setting uh, and um, the way that technology and humans could combine in the future in terms of transhumanism yeah. to portray corporate culture and portray billionaires and these kinds of people as literal transhuman gods living in skyscrapers above the clouds kind of indefinitely forever, Interpo- yeah. interposed with the people who are living down below and their shitty lives and the stuff that they have to deal with. And the fact that they are not able to afford meals, let alone the ability to augment their bodies and, and extend their lifespans and stuff like that. Um, and so it's really amazing that, Science Fiction is able to do that kind of thing, and then on the flip side it's like you have something like Game of Thrones, which Gabby you mentioned in the last episode is one of the things that kind of like really pulled you into uh fantasy, where George R. R. Martin is taking things like the War of the Roses, yeah, and using that as uh a very no, I like some people might say like copy and paste, but I don't think it's copy and paste because he is. No, it's just adapt- heavily He's,
2: inspired. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Heavily inspired. And it's someone who's passionate about something that happened in history. And mm-hmm. it's really cool that, that fantasy and sci-fi authors can take these things and transpose them into, um, fictional settings and, and alternate universes and secondary worlds and all this, this, this kind of stuff to. I don't know, just like give us an opportunity to think about things in our real world that we have yeah. to ignore. Because it,
0: it, maybe in some cases we wouldn't know about it otherwise. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's just a connection for a hungry and curious reader to discover more. You know, when I was growing up, I was, like I said, obsessed with anime and video games and I learned so much of Japanese culture because they show that they show their culture in their stories the the creators of anime, and I was just intrigued like, "Oh, so what does this mean? So let me look it up, or what is the, this historical period what what happened and it's something that I wouldn't know otherwise, but it piqued my interest, an export of their country and and you know you can see now the kind of effects that it's had on the popularity of Japanese stuff all over the world. They've exported so much science fiction and fantasy, capturing the minds of so many viewers and readers that we are all in love with and we want to go to Japan and we want to consume everything Japanese. Like there's been a boom, right? Of people going there and yeah. love.
1: Well. They even have like terms for it, like weeaboo and yeah. <laughs> shit like that. It's like...
0: Liking anime is mainstream now. But
1: yeah. I remember back in the day when it was not. <laughs> yeah. Back in the 90s where it's like I don't want to talk to like people at school about like Dragon Ball Z or I don't want to talk to them about like, you know, oh I went to the theater to see Pokémon on the opening night and just like, <laughs> you know, stuff like that where it's like um I feel like the the growth of the internet over our lifetimes has really um has really opened people's eyes to the the commonalities that they share. Yeah. Um, but also oh, what yeah. you said, Gabby, in terms of being able to see something and then just do like a deep dive into it. Right. And, and just be like, this culture seems fascinating to me and I'm just going to fucking sink myself into it and go down like a Wikipedia vortex and, <laughs> and just <laughs> yeah. really, really learn yeah. about that kind of stuff in ways that never in human history have been possible.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of cool because, so I don't read my reviews, but my husband does and he shares with me like, like the good ones. And he's been like, Oh, there's so many people who never would have thought about Venezuela or like never don't think about going to eat arepas and you're inspiring them to go and do that, you know? And, and that's what we do. With by creating the stories, these engaging stories that are drawing from real life cultures, um, it's just you know, a spreading of the culture and immortalization of it. More people are going to be exposed to it and put and hopefully maybe drawn to it, and they could come and explore it more. So, I think it's just like a win overall, win for the culture of humanity,
1: yeah. And it's like an an immortalization of your experience, too. Not just, not just like the culture itself, but you as, um, as like a human being who's been influenced by that culture and the things that, that you love. And the fact, like, I love that. It's like, I can just picture someone being like reading this book and be like, I'm going to go look up like a Venezuelan restaurant and see what I can buy. like (laughs) see what kinds of foods I can try. And all that kind of stuff, because it's like, yeah. damn, girl, you have described food so well. I Thank you. It. Oh it's yeah, so good. I get so yeah. hungry like, when I'm reading yeah. some parts. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this feast. Mm, God damn, that, that that is like MJ and I love Redwall, and it's like Redwall is all about the feast. Oh yeah. I feel like a good like, fantasy a book lot of
2: feast of scene is
1: anime. Anime just does like food so well. I just oh, have yeah. like v- images burned into my brain of like, you know howl's moving castle where calcifer is like has a frying pan on top of them and they're cooking eggs yeah. Like that looks like the most delicious fucking egg in existence like, you watch know. spirited away and spirited away and like the way that
0: so it's much also, food
1: yeah so much food oh my god so much oh, beautiful food oh, damn. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right on, i need to yeah. snack
2: you guys come on <laughs>
1: <laughs> you haven't been snacking this whole time mj i
2: I haven't.
1: Not this episode. Now I need a snack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Gabby, let's dig deeper into, I mean, on the topic of food, but broadly speaking, world-building. How did you approach the world-building for The Sun and the Void and what were some of the elements that hit you first? And then how did you build upon that using the inspirations from Venezuelan culture, history, folklore, that kind of stuff?
0: Um so the first things that I did were the easy things, which was like the races and the magic system. Um, But as far as like making the, the world seem real, I wanted to give it like this historical background that it had a revolution. It has the heroes from the independence because that's something that's very similar to Venezuelan culture. Like, We idolize a lot of the heroes from the revolution. Like their names are everywhere. You know, the names of schools, streets, plazas. Um, And I wanted to also show that in this world to, I think that gives it like a more grounded feeling and, uh, and it gives it like a cool historical background to add more characters. Uh, And, and I wanted to add the sense that this nations were like freshly created, like after being freed from colonization. But really to give it like a, a grounding sense, I really like delved into Musica Llanera. And this is a genre of music from the Llanos of uh, Venezuela and Colombia. And the the lyrics are so folkloric. Like they just talk about like a very pastoral way of life. These are ranchers. they they work in Haciendas and they work in like, they, they handle cattle, they grow cattle, um, raise cattle. And, and, (laughs) they grow
2: them sort of. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And, and like the, the lyrics of the music is very pastoral, very personal. Like they, they talk about like a very, um, humble, like day to day life and the struggles of like finding like, lover or like encounters with the devil and like seeing spirits and ghosts and I feel like that that just gives like a very it it just I knew it was going to give me a very grounding idea of what this world probably felt like if it was in the 1800s you know like there's no electricity there's so much like superstition and myths that are people believe in so different things um, so I was just listening to música genera to kind of like get a sense of how it would feel to be in this world. And I tried to add some of that, that like little bits and pieces, uh, into the lore. Like when I created the lore, I was inspired by it and I created my own lore and added it to the world so that it would feel like this was, you know. Venezuela like many years ago in a fantasy setting and I think that's like one of the biggest biggest things that I did to give it a grounding feeling and obviously like the trying to get the clothing and the food and it was also very important to me to show Venezuela in a very in like a positive light in media I feel like Venezuela is often used as uh, an example or a topic for a lot of polarizing discussions. And um, it's not often like, talked about in a positive way. So I wanted to give a glimpse of like, so much beauty that we have. And that's why I wanted to include like different biomes and geographies um, in, in this world. Because we do have such beautiful beaches and beautiful mountains and beautiful prairies and jungles and we even have a desert. We have so much, and the world really has no idea. <laughs> um, and I want more people to know about it. So I just want it to be like an escape, like a beautiful escape. And and I try to give it like a grounding sense when I created this world. I I tapped into some of my memories of growing up in Venezuela and whenever I. You know, my, my dad is from the coast, so I I would go to the beach and stay in the in his hometown, his little beach town, like so many summers. Um, my mom is from the Andes, and I spent so many years in the Andes as well, and going up to the paramo. Um, so I wanted I wanted to give I try to imbue that into the writing so that the reader could be transported and also experience that, and realize that we have like a paradise just
2: there. <laughs> yeah, it definitely I mean, comes through. I mean, the world is yeah. so immersive. It is so immersive like, in this story. I'm
1: I'm curious cuz like MJ, I want to get your kind of take on this as someone who's read this cuz it's like for me, this is this has probably been one of the most in recent memory, one of the most like intensely personal feeling worlds that I've ever immersed myself into. In terms of like I come to uh, like I've come to Ecuador. I've immersed myself in the culture. I've learned the language. I've lived here for so many years, and this is the first time that I've read fantasy where I was like, "Holy shit!" Like the the way that you describe the biomes and the geography, it's like I'm I'm up in the Andes in and Quito, and for anyone who like in terms of geography, it's like um, and history as well. Like uh, Simón Bolívar united many different countries, like parts of. Uh, Brazil, um, Venezuela, Panama, Colombia, Ecuador, and parts of Peru into a giant independent country called Gran Colombia. And so Gran Colombia is like, there's so much shared history between yeah. places like Ecuador yeah. and Venezuela that for yeah. me, it's like, even though I'm from Canada and I live in Ecuador, but you're from Venezuela and now you live in the States, there's so much that that I was able to take out of this that felt really personal to me in terms mm-hmm. of like, walking through the paramo and seeing like frailejones like these trees that i've seen so many times and just being like that <laughs> image is so burned into my mind that i'm like holy shit or the yeah. food even though the food is it varies a lot over south across south america but yeah. like so many things that are shared like arepas and like yeah like stews and all different kinds of stuff like goat stew and 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 things like that and the shared history for me felt so personal that I was able to like immerse myself. I think more than a lot of books have allowed me to do just because it's like, I'm passionate about this country. I love it. Like I can fucking drive like two hours in either direction. And it's like, I go to like a cloud forest in one direction and then towards the coast or it's like in the other direction, I'm literally in the Amazon in two hours or it's like, I go like, (laughs) <laughs> so so many different kinds of biomes and it's fucking wild and people don't understand the beauty of these places mm-hmm. like before i moved to ecuador people were like where is that like africa <laughs> oh my god <gosh. laughs> and i'm just don't, like what the fuck
0: don't <laughs> get <laughs> me started how many times i've been asked yeah what part of africa is that
1: <laughs> yeah or like <laughs> no. where, yeah or like i or like i tell them like ah, oh, it's actually like where galapagos is and people are like uh-huh. oh i had no idea galapagos was like a part of ecuador Yeah. Um, And then like with Venezuela, the way that it's portrayed in in media, it's like, yes, because of its communist history and Hugo Chavez and all these different people who have basically been counter to what we see as like Western democracy, it's been villainized. And and the country went through a really hard time Mm -hmm. when it crashed and and, uh, Hugo Chavez dying and like everything being passed on to his brother and all this shit happening. But it's like, yeah, you see Venezuelans as like guerrilla fighters terrorists and all this kind of shit and it's like for me to see you be able to portray your country in a way that is positive is so beautiful thank you thank
0: you (laughs) i i was really driven to to show that i was really driven to show it in a positive light because i so I, i i moved to the u.s but i would always come back to spend my summers here i mean in venezuela and I, it was like, man, this is paradise. This is heaven. Like, and no one knows about it and no one believes me. And so I, I, I just always wanted to show people Venezuela and and this is a cool way to do it. As, as a writer, I'm able to immerse a reader in, in the world and hopefully get them inspired into looking up more things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. MJ, what was Absolutely. your take as someone who's like, much more separated from this. Well, that's
2: I say I'm a complete, you know, outsider from from the culture entirely. I've never, you know, traveled to South America. I I, you know, don't have a ton of knowledge um of the culture there at all. So um this was like what you you know you're saying, Gabby, where you want to introduce people to uh the culture that hi, you introduced me to the culture. Uh <laughs> you know, because it was just, you know, something I had not um been exposed to really before. Uh yeah. You know, I, I I knew a little. So my brother in law's roommate in college uh, was uh, from Venezuela. So uh, you know, like arepas and stuff like that. Like we, he's taken the recipes from his roommate. So like I, some of the food uh, was was familiar to me, um, just through that. But yeah, it was just a really cool introduction to to a part of the world uh, that I have not been to. Uh, I got to like transport my mind. You know what I mean to to something very heavily inspired, and I, I loved that. Um, but i I want to know because it it is so immersive like i I for anyone that hasn't read the book yet, uh first of all, what are you doing? Go get it and read it. It's great <laughs> <laughs> um but you know just uh, for myself as a writer, and I know we have a lot of uh writers that listen to the to the show as well. I want to pick your brain about your world building process because clearly it's fantastic because you've created something that feels so real and immersive. What like tools do you use? How much do you know before you start drafting? Like, are you more of a pantser or do you really plan out your world before you get started? You know, how do you organize your thoughts and ideas? Like, just indulge me a little.
0: <laughs> I'm a heavy planner and I have extensive outlines and I have extensive world building encyclopedias that I build as I go along. Uh, I and mean, I did that for for this book just because it was a bit challenging to keep track of everything. And I just needed a quick way to search for something. So if I if I drop something in my draft, then it would also go into like my world building document. But prior to drafting, while I'm doing the outlining, I want the world to have an impact on the characters. So I think being inspired by like whatever my inspiration was or is, I, I try to imbue that into the world building, such that it also impacts the plot and the characters. So there's a little bit of research that goes into it. Well, not, I'm doing that a little more of a book too, because I, I want to just kind of like see, like there's a, a little more, any more folklore that I can draw from and uh, to solve some of my plot kinks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with this, but like doing a little bit of research will help inspire. And then I, I, what I try to do is I don't want to grab the same stories that exist in the folklore. I want to creatively imagine something that would be similar. So for example, uh, Chess's blade is able to cut nighttime. Like like that's the, his legend. Um, that's not really like a story that I found anywhere, but like, I, as I was reading like different legends and myths, I just wanted to create something that it would have like that similar fantastical feel, like almost like abstract and surreal because a lot of the folklore myths have like kind of like a surreal f- feel, like the way the, the legends have resolved is like, oh, and so and so like stepped on the town and the town was shattered and destroyed, like, and it's supposed to be like an like a metaphor for an earthquake that happened or something like that. So it's just like very surreal things make up the folklore that gave me my inspiration. So I try to write or try to make like little different, um, snippets and backgrounds that felt that same way. Or like, for example, I have this story of uh princess Marle who discovered the river by like writing, uh, on her jaguar that raced her it's something like a story that i came up with but that has kind of like a surreal feeling inspired by actual folklore you know or even even the the whole like testing for the damas which is like kidnapping babies um you know the 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 myths of like witches kidnapping babies are almost everywhere you know and it's also it's a prevalent yeah. of Venezuelan culture as well uh i don't know maybe it's like rooted in catholicism i don't know where it comes from but like a lot of <laughs> a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of uh a lot of cu- cultures around, across the world have a similar spin to that um so in the son of the void you actually have a witch this kidnapping baby is literal witch uh for her for her rituals. So um I don't know, just rewriting and making it
1: seem similar,
0: you know? Yeah.
1: I kind of want to elaborate on this a bit cuz I love this 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 dichotomy between like um things that are inspired by cultures but then as fantasy and science fiction authors is like we want to invent stuff too. We want to kind of make it our own. We want to put a twist on it and, and make it feel a little bit more like ours. But what what would you say to other authors in terms of like, um, where they can draw the line between those two things or at least kind of offer something where, you know, they feel comfortable approaching, um, history and real world cultures without, without, uh, hesitation about like, you know, pulling aspects of this and kind of morphing it into something that is their own.
2: Um
0: oh, This is Can you be a little more specific? <laughs> like <laughs> drawing from other cultures?
1: No, we'll 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 get that we'll get to that in a little in a little bit, but in terms of like um that balance between um things that are inspired by a culture, whether it's your own, whether it's a, another one uh, versus the things that, that authors invent themselves, like what you were talking about in terms of like taking these things from folklore and um, kind of putting your own twist on them, just kind of drawing that inspiration, but not being like a one-to-one exact kind of copy. Right.
0: I think the end goal is also important to consider like, what kind of feel are you trying to achieve in the story itself? And then seeing if, like, try to molding the story, the, using your creativity. I, I would implore people to use the creativity to, if they want to create those, those stories that would go into the world that they're trying to build um, in order to reach the end goal. So what is the, what is the final feel that you want for the world and then creating stories and, and pieces, creating mythos um of your own. I I I don't know, I, I created a lot from scratch, but I wanted to make it feel like it belonged in the world as well. Um, so it was it was an inspiration of like flavor and aesthetic. Um Rather than a one to one inspiration of in grabbing the stories themselves, so I wanted to, I wanted the end product to feel a certain way, and uh, it was, I guess, it was easy for me because I grew up in Venezuela and I know what like growing up like what the culture feels like. So I wasn't like drawing huge tangents to what the end product I wanted to look like, uh, but I still made up my own stories. I, I still yeah. made up like the. The mythos of the world, you
2: know. Right. Just gave it the that same vibe for lack of, of better word for what you were looking for. I love that. Yeah. It's
1: all I about the vibes, a, MJ.
2: It is. It's all about the vibes, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get a little deeper into research. Um, because clearly uh you did quite a bit of research. You said you're doing more for book two. Um, and I know some of it is, you know, based on your own experiences, which I feel like is like lived research. I feel like it counts. Um, I'm just curious uh, how important research has been to you, you know, crafting the story uh, based on a, on a real culture. Um, and are there research pitfalls that you've fallen into? Or, you know, have you found yourself struggling with some stuff, just like a a heads up a warning, if a writer wants to, you know, craft a a story based on their culture.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I, something just came up into my head, like came up to my mind. I was double checking a lot of the things that I grew up with, with my family and people in my community. But I also discovered that you have to kind of like have multiple sources for where you get the information because someone's account might be biased or just straight up wrong or it's just like what they did in their family or what they did in their the street where they grew up with but it's not like the actual root of why something is a certain way um yeah so small little details I would like ask my mom like oh what for example there is a there's a drink called mistela and I remember that in my family, whenever someone was born, we would, or it's, someone would like make like a little bit of the drink, and it's like it's an alcoholic drink of anise and like st- like a fruit like strawberry juice, and just bring it to like the wherever the the pregnant woman is, like the family, and it's just gift it and like you share it with the people that are you know meeting the baby for the first time, maybe not the mom, anyways. Um, and I was just like trying to like check that and I, and I could not find, um, uh, if anyone else was doing this, <laughs> so like, is it just like a family thing or is it actually like the broader culture does, but also you can disregard something that just your family does because that is culture as well. Right.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's one of the most intimate forms of culture. Yeah, yeah.
0: So um, I guess where I'm trying to go with this is, uh, it's like really exciting to find multiple sources for the same thing, just to enrich the material that you're looking for, Um, and it might lead you to like new exciting places.
1: I mean, yeah, because we we talked to uh, to Ronnie Verdi recently about the hero's journey and how that ties into storytelling tradition and oral storytelling and how stories evolve over time and, and space. And basically it's like shit's malleable, you know, like tradition is malleable, culture is malleable from one family to the next. It's like their recipe for arepas is, could be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, their, their certain like familial traditions are different. It's like music shifts from place to place as well. So it's kind of yeah. cool to be able to have like, I, I like that you, that you approach it from like multiple sources. Cause it, it, what that will give you is a depth of comparison and that will give you more context for how these things yeah. can evolve. And I think as fantasy and sci-fi writers, it's kind of cool to think like that gives you a little bit of flexibility to make it a bit more personal and a bit more your mm-hmm. own at the same yeah. time. You know? Well,
2: it reminds me of what you said uh, at the very beginning of this episode, Gabby, where you you talked about culture being a blueprint from the people that came before you, which I just thought was such a beautiful description of culture. And then, if you think about it on like a long scale timeline, someday we will be the people that are creating a portion of that culture, right? Yeah, a portion definitely. of that blueprint for the people that come after us. yeah, um and I think that that's a very cool way to, to kind of look at how, how your story can fit into, you know what I mean? Building, building a new culture moving forward. I think it's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we, we touched on it a little bit earlier and this is a bit of a tricky topic, but I want to get your thoughts on all, all three of us can discuss this, but thoughts on, on writers drawing inspiration from cultures that are not their own. Um, and you know, how writers might best avoid cultural appropriation and instead approach other cultures with something that, that I personally, um, try to try to do myself and try to, um, approach other cultures with appreciation and respect and, and just learn as much as you can. And, and, and like you were saying, like compare and contrast, like how different people are doing things and, and let that kind of fold into your own personal experiences. So what are you, what are your thoughts on 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 that where it's like writers drawing inspiration from cultures that are not their own?
0: Uh well, I think I think it's important to examine like the reason why they are doing it. Is it like like is there a passion for the culture itself? Like is there a passion to keep the beliefs alive to to sp- spread the customs and the music and and the sayings and and the art, or is it just us like fodder because you can't be creative? Like, what is the what is the actual reason? And in one like, if it's like a passion, I feel like that's like you're like an appreciation of 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 the culture and and I think this this topic has become tricky. Recently, is because a lot of people have done it carelessly in ways that depict other cultures in a negative lens or in a lens where like uh, the viewers will have a incorrect opinion of the culture that's being
1: depicted or a generalization of that culture. Yeah. Too.
0: Right. Stereotypical where, view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's kind of, I think that's one of the reasons why it's like, A problem nowadays when it's not done carefully and when the the all the layers are examined as to why that culture is the way it is um and instead it's just used as you know inspiration because the writer can't come up with like their own mythos and folklore. I, I think as writers, we have a lot of power and what we're doing is ultimately it's just like making things up. So why not make more things up instead? And instead like draw from something else, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, that, that, that using other cultures as like set dressing shit pisses me off so much because <laughs> it's like you, you, you're basically just taking like, um, stereotypes about that culture and just kind of applying it to whatever kind of story you want to tell. And it's lazy. Like, um, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to, uh, either like laziness or a misdiagnosis of like what that culture is actually about. And then making, um, making pervasive stereotypes within the industry. And then those end up bleeding out into like readers and into culture. And that's how so many shitty stereotypes exist now. Like Venezuelan terrorists or like guerrilla warfighters is because of the way media has stereotyped and perpetuated. And
0: it's created by people that are not in immersed in it. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it's like this, like the, the world that I'm working in right now, and like the book that I'm going to be releasing next year is inspired by Japan and my love of Japan. It's like I grew up with anime, I grew up with um, Japanese video games and JRPGs and all these different kinds of things, but I'm also super, super passionate and and nerdy about Japanese history and learning about the ways in which Japanese society and culture has progressed. And it's like using that as a an inspiration and then blending that with mushrooms and and... <laughs> And mushroom people and creating fungal this world punk. that, fungal punk baby, yeah, um, and and basically creating this world that is is an homage to Japan, a respectful homage mm-hmm. based on a place that I'm I love and have actually visited, and um, you know feels real to me and feels personal to me, but is also a reflection of this place that I adore. And like you know, I hope when people read the books that that they feel that as well and not necessarily like so much stuff that has just pervaded science fiction and fantasy over time where it's like, you know, uh, dwarves are basically just like built on a stereotype of Jewish people and like all this different kind of shit that has made people's opinions really sour and gotten us to this point where things are way more sensitive.
0: Yeah. 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 I think if it's an appreciation, like a, a true passion for it, then the writer will be less likely to like fall into those like easy traps of like making stereotypes or generalizing, you know?
1: Mhm. MJ, what's your take?
2: Yeah. I mean, my take, and it is, it is a tricky topic. Um, my take in general, every time I have an idea for a story, I ask myself several questions and one of the ones i ask myself is am i the right person to tell this story because just because i have an idea that could be a great story doesn't mean that it's a great story that i should write you know what i mean um and i think that that's something that people need to to do and be careful about and and stuff like that um you know i guess i don't i don't necessarily really have a great answer uh
0: to the question it's not, it's not so much about like writing in itself like I, like the writing part is not as harmful the harmful part is when you start publishing it and distributing it to like a wider audience yeah. yeah I feel like writing is a personal thing and writers choose what they put out into the world and some things just stay for ourselves and it's a way to like process things or explore things that we want to explore but that doesn't mean that it has to be the thing that furthers human culture which is what we're doing whenever we publish a book
1: yeah yeah because yeah. then it goes into the the record of
0: yeah it's like when you put something in the internet existence. it's there forever yeah. it's kind of it's <laughs> right. similarly yeah. way. you know like yeah. when you put out like a story publish it print it Then it's there. People are reading it. And now you are incepting their minds Mm -hmm. with your ideas that you had. And if your ideas were harmful, then you're only perpetrating that harmful.
1: Yeah. I think it's like the difference between like, you know, not necessarily like you have to tread carefully. It's like, no, walk, walk and write with purpose and and you know, think about the shit that you're putting down into words and think about uh what that will be like when you put it out into the world and it's like yeah. if you're purposeful about these things if you're respectful and passionate then i think people will kind of catch on to that and and understand where you're coming from whereas if you're coming from a place of laziness or or um sort of like discriminatory angle or um perpetuating stereotypes and stuff like that then people will also catch on to that shit and they're more, like, more likely to be like, oh, come on, like...
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know and there's always why? resources, right? Like, sensitivity <laughs> yeah. readers exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, I definitely think if someone's going to attempt to write a, a story based on or inspired by a culture outside of their own, they need to avail themselves of resources like sensitivity readers um, to, <laughs> to prevent... Yeah accidentally, you know what I mean? Perpetuating something because they don't yeah. fully understand because it's not their culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this has been a really fascinating conversation. I think we've gotten some really great insights from you, Gabby. This has been so, so great. And I think it's going to be really helpful for our listeners. Um, you know, when they're, when they're crafting their worlds based on real cultures, um, do you have a final piece of advice that you can give to authors looking to take, you know, their family's real-life culture and translate it into a fantasy or a sci-fi world?
1: Oh.
2: Um,
0: I don't know. I feel like I've given a lot of advice.
2: Already. I know, I was going to say, we're greedy. <laughs> we already got so much advice, we're like, we want more. <laughs> Are we able to cut
0: out, like the time that we're thinking here
1: (laughs) or we can keep it in for dramatic effect
0: (laughs) no it's (laughs) a a drum
1: roll (laughs) (laughs) oh
0: i didn't sorry i didn't think about this
1: Uh, no no, it's all good
2: do it passionately
0: like even like everyone's stories matters like everyone has their own culture Everyone, every household has their own culture. And if you're trying to share that with someone else, then do it in a way that will be enticing. that would be appealing that will further human culture.
1: Yeah. And if it's like, if you're, if you're passionate about it, like you're probably writing it for yourself. And at that point, everyone else is going to be like, Fuck. Yeah. This is awesome. I mean, not everybody is, but there will, (laughs) there will be an audience, audience,
2: right? The right people. Yeah. Yeah. The people that your story is meant to enrich. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well that is it for this mini masterclass and our two-parter with Gabriela. Muchísimas gracias for, for hanging out with MJ and I and just, and just sharing everything that you've experienced and, and, Um, you know, your writing journey and all that, this has been a ton of fun. So I really, really appreciate it. This has been really
0: fun. Um, (laughs) Yay.
1: (laughs) And, uh, as well for anyone who contributes to our Patreon at $10 or more a month, there'll be a reading by Gabby from the sun in the void. So go check that out, go pick up the book. It's fantastic support debut authors, support authors and their work. Um, I believe, uh, the UK edition will be out by the time this, this episode goes out. So it's August 15th. Um, uh, so if you're in the US, UK, both of them have awesome covers. Yeah. And Inside is oh, a fantastic yeah. book. So just pick it up and enjoy. Um Gabby, where can people find you on social media?
0: Um if you're interested in my books and writing life, I am Gabriela Romero La Cruz in Instagram, uh Twitter, G Romero La Cruz, and TikTok. I'm also Gabriela Romero la Cruz. Um, as far as my illustration, um, the moonborn everywhere.
1: All right. Perfect. And you can also follow SFF addicts on Instagram, Twitter and threads at SFF addicts pod, or you can follow me at Adrian M Gibson, MJ, where can people find you? Yep.
2: You can find me across all the socials at MJ Coon books.
1: All right. And go pick up among thieves, go get thick as thieves, support MJ's work as well. Uh, <laughs> she's fantastic. So just, yeah. Just- just support your authors, man. (laughs) These are beautiful people doing beautiful things, writing beautiful books. So keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.